guarantee that everything you're about to hear is going to be far less polished than that intro was. This is just my style. This is the way it, way it happens. Good morning. Hey. How's everybody doing? All right. This, we got a full house this morning. That's awesome. I love it. Having, needing, you know, looking ahead and thinking, okay, we might need to bring in more chairs. It's a tremendous problem to have. So thank you all for contributing to a problem. Appreciate it. It's great. Um, so today, yeah, today we're starting, uh, we're, we're in the second message of the series, series uh, about the Beatitudes. I want to start, I was remembering something this morning, uh, and it's going to tie into the message today, almost certainly. But uh, have you ever felt like, let's say, just at the workplace, overlooked, um, underestimated? You don't have to raise your hand and scream yes if that's you, but that, it happens, right? It happens. Um, like maybe the things that you're doing aren't being appreciated. You know that you're bringing more value than maybe what your supervisor is telling you you're bringing. You feel unlikely for promotion, unlikely for you know, the, things that, uh, the things that that job has to offer. And along those lines, I was thinking this morning of my short career at Buffet Palace. Mm. <laughs> I was... Anybody ever been to Buffet Palace? Yeah. It's it's a place to go if you want to fill up on um, like moderately okay Asian food and then moderately feel okay. sick afterwards. <laughs> and I worked there for a while. Um, I, and this was when they were still small. And my brother-in-law, David, and I worked at Buffet Palace together. We were wait waiters, which at Buffet Palace pretty much just means people come in the door, they sit at a table, you walk up to the table, and you bring them plates, and then you ask them if they want anything to drink. They tell you what they want to drink, and then you go get it, and you bring it back, and then you just let them do their own thing. And when they leave, they go get a tip, as if you've done something. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this is a job I can handle. This seems like it's, it really speaks strongly to my skill set. Sit there and eat. I can, you know, do. I can have, leave them alone. I'm good at that, and then they can tip me. I'm good at receiving tips as well. So, so I was in my first month, I guess. Uh, my my boss at the time was a man named Sam, Sam Sheeny. Uh, he was a very stern guy. He was one of those. If he'd been a teacher, he would have been the "Don't smile till December" kind of teacher, right? Because then you know, as soon as as soon as people know that you're nice, then that's it. You've lost control, and it's nothing but work, work, work all the time. So I got the job, and in my job interview, Sam didn't say anything. Like, I was interviewed by a person who didn't ask any questions. I just walked up, and I handed him my application, and he just looked at me and looked at the application and kind of shook his head. <laughs> and then he handed it back to me and looked over and, and said something to someone who already worked there, who said to me, okay, so you start Tuesday. <laughs> that was my interview. It's gonna be awesome, I'm so good at this already. <laughs> so I had a, like a month long like training period where they were vetting me, they were evaluating me. And so at the end of my shift, on that, old, that last day of the month, Sam is sitting and he's, he's going through, you see he's going through all the all the stuff for the day, and he's sitting in the back booth, and uh, someone comes to me and says, okay, Sam wants to talk to you. And he had never said a word to me, right? And I'm like, this is good timing. Okay, I need to 
And so I go and I sit down. I'm sitting in Google Classroom Center. And Sam doesn't look at me for an uncomfortable long time. And I don't have anything to do. I'm just sitting there wondering what's going to happen. And Sam looks up. And he says to me, words that made me feel a bit underestimated, a bit overlooked, a bit underappreciated in the workplace. He looks at me and he just says, if you want to be a good weight person, you will need to improve your doing and just completely ignored me. <laughs> and so I got up and I started walking out the door and my coworker at the time was standing at the, at the register and, and she just said, okay, see you tomorrow. Okay. I worked there for like two years. <laughs> I think that was the only thing Sam ever said to me. If you want to be a good weight person, you need to improve your In that, in that sense, in that workplace, I felt very unlikely, right? Which kind of brings us here to the, to the Beatitudes. Let's go back into Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. So when Jesus saw the crowds, he went, I can't tell that story without really having flashbacks, honestly. It's terrible. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in the Beatitudes, uh, as I mentioned last week, Jesus is kind of laying out a different version of uh, an alternate reality, in a way. The reality that the Jews of his day had known was was not this, uh, that if you're, if you're meek, if you're humble, if you're persecuted, you're blessed. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't feel that way when you're being uh, persecuted, when you're having to be meek, when you're having to humble yourself. It doesn't feel like you're inheriting the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is actually talking about a kingdom that overflows with blessing, <laughs> overflows with abundance. And he's telling us, telling them and us, exactly who qualifies to inherit it, to walk in it, to receive everything that it offers, and it's not who you expect. And certainly to the religious leaders of that day, it wasn't who you would expect. It's people that are just like us, people that might consider themselves unlikely for such an inheritance. So we see in Matthew what's going on here is uh, a lot like it's one of my favorite chapters, actually, in all of the Bible, but in 1 Samuel chapter 16. What we're seeing here is kind of what we're seeing 
in First Samuel, where uh, you know Saul had made, I think it's an understatement to say Saul had made a couple of mistakes. <laughs> so Saul kind of messed up, and he needs to be the king. He needs to improve his armor. <laughs> and if only he had a Sanchini at the time, that would have been something. I guess he had a Samuel, so that's pretty close. So, so the, the king of Israel, Saul, had made a few mistakes, and God thought, oh, we've got to fix this. Okay, I've got somebody else in mind. So he speaks to the prophet Samuel, and he says, go to Jesse's house, and there is his son. That's the next king. You'll know him when you see him. And so Samuel famously goes to Jesse's house, and the very first son that is presented to him is a name I can't pronounce. I think it's Eliab. I'm not really sure. Does anybody have the pronunciation down? You can shout it out if you know. Eliab, good. I didn't think it was Eliab, because that just sounds weird. So let me say Eliab. So uh, Eliab is tall, and he's handsome, he's good looking. He's actually described exactly the way that Saul was described. He's tall, he's handsome. Saul's qualifications for being king, by the way, when uh, when they were talking about who should be the next king, the only thing you see mentioned in the Bible is that we should choose Saul. He's tall. <laughs> there you go. And that's really all. That's really all. You know. So, uh, Jesse's first son comes in and Samuel thinks, this has got to be the guy. He looks the part. And God says, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, my favorite scripture of all time, not the first part, really, this Eliab specific. The Lord said to Samuel, Eliab is tall and handsome, but don't judge by things like that. God doesn't look at what people see. People judge by what's on the outside, but the Lord looks at the heart. And it's actually only, he says this to Samuel, and then it takes Samuel just a bit to let that really sink in. So steeped in like his perception of, who should really be a king? Who looks the part? Several other sons of Jesse come by. And Samuel's like, okay, well, that's probably the guy. And God's like, no. No, that one? No. That guy? No. Is it put big? No. Finally, he gets to a point where he says, Jesse, you got to have some more sons. <laughs> you must. Because God has said no to all of these in here. And Jesse thinks and says out loud, So, David was all about his, he was out, outside doing his father's business. David was the unlikely choice. He wasn't even invited into the house to be considered. He was the unlikely choice to be a king. But he was the one who, who God was looking at because he had it in his heart. And here in the book of Matthew, we're at a time in history where the Jews have been looking for a king. They've been looking for the Messiah to come. They've been looking for someone and expecting somebody who's going to be strong, who's going to be tall and be able to overthrow an oppressive and corrupt government. They're looking for a military messiah. They're looking for somebody to come in and kick stuff and take names. That's what they're looking for. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus is an unlikely king. He's an unlikely king. And just as he was then, 
who's now still looking at the heart. That's what qualifies him. That's what qualifies him. He's laying out in the, in the Beatitudes nine blessings for those who are willing to follow his ways and step into his kingdom. As I mentioned last week, the blessings aren't really prescriptive. The Beatitudes aren't like oh, best practices for living a really successful life in this world system. Because if you're, you know, we know that if you're me, if you're humble, sometimes you get run over in this world system. Because it doesn't operate by the same rules as God's kingdom does. But the Beatitudes are, are gospel. They're not so much good advice for people to follow if they want to be successful in business or if they want to get ahead in the world. They're, they're good news. What they're declaring is if your heart is in the right place, if your heart is turned towards God, then everything that he has is yours. If, even if you feel unlikely, I'm kind of getting ahead of it. I'm getting ahead of it. I think I need to say it now anyway. If you're, if you're feeling unlikely, you're probably in the right place to receive something from God. Because it's really hard for God to fill up someone who's filled up already to the brim with themselves. There's no room left. And so there's nine blessings in here. And we're going to focus on one of them today. We're going to focus on verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I promised myself my eyes wouldn't get sweaty today, but they're, they're going to get So like everything in the Beatitudes, there's a practical and a spiritual component to all of this. There's two sides of the same coin, right? Uh, Jesus was talking to a lot of people who understood what it meant to be poor. The gap here between the rich and the poor is very wide, wider than what we perceive it is today. Today, at least we've got a middle class that's somewhere in between. But Jesus is speaking to people who know that either you're the 1% who's ruling So it, is, it probably would have surprised Jesus' listeners to hear that the poor 
are blessed. Actually, if you look back into the Psalms, some of some of the some of the songs that the and the Psalms of God's people would might lead you to believe that with God's blessing always comes material abundance, right? If you look at Psalm one forty four, verses thirteen through fifteen, our barns will be filled with every kind of provision. Our sheep will increase by thousands, by tens of thousands in our fields. Our oxen will draw heavy loads. There will be no breaching of walls, no going into captivity, no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed is the people of whom this is true. Blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. And you can see there a real heavy tie to we're blessed, we're the people of the Lord, and look at all the stuff we have. Look at all the stuff that we have. That's not the whole, the whole picture. I don't think God is against us having stuff. But he's first considered, he's considering where are our hearts. Because if, if our hearts aren't right, then it won't matter how much stuff we have or don't have. We'll still be far from him. Still be far from him. We think this way a lot still. Like the ones who have all the money or the ones who have the best lives, the, the rich, the powerful, the successful. Like our culture kind of teaches that if you've got stuff, you can't be blessed. And Jesus is trying to present us here with something that's different. Actually, Paul was, uh, the apostle was warning Timothy about this simplistic association between material gain and divine blessings. And he says, godliness, in 1 Timothy 6, uh, 6-8, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, you'll be content with that. And we mentioned this a couple weeks ago in the, in the message on tithing, but sometimes God's blessing does come in material forms. But like, you're blessed with money, it's not necessarily always a blessing. Sometimes it's a test to see where your heart is, to see what you can do with that blessing. Uh, and, and this is one of the things that Jesus is, is alluding to here. He's kind of juxtaposing this notion that was culturally held that the blessed life is material, and he's juxtaposing that with what he's saying here on the Sermon on the Mount, that the blessed life is actually far deeper than that. It's not just material. That can be a manifestation of it, but to be truly blessed is an inside job. To be truly blessed is something that happens from the inside, and Jesus is illustrating sort of a paradox of the gospel of the kingdom. This kingdom isn't coming, he says, to the ones who you would suppose it would come to first. This kingdom isn't coming to, to people who already have it all. I mean, it's coming for them too, but they're going to have to meet the same qualifications as the people who don't have anything. It's leveling the playing field. Leveling the playing field. Uh, it's come to the poor, he says. And they're being told for the, the first time that in spite of being lowly, in spite of being powerless, they are receiving something. They're receiving the kingdom. They're receiving the inheritance. In spite of what society or the world or their material wealth has told them they should be receiving, they get to have it. And we get to have it. Martin Luther uh, wrote, uh, he was trying not to make poverty or prosperity the point. And he said that when Jesus was exhorting his followers, he said, if they're a failure, they have to suffer poverty and be without riches, power, honor, and good days, they will still be blessed and have not a temporal reward, but a different and an eternal one. They'll have enough 
in the kingdom of heaven. Regardless of what we have in this earth, Jesus is promising in the kingdom of heaven, you have enough. You have more than enough. You have more than enough. There's a book by a, an author and a, he's a worship leader as well, Glenn Patrick. He wrote a book about the Beatitudes called Lucky. And I just want to go really quickly uh, through. I was at a I was at a worship leaders conference one time. Just one time. Um, <laughs> I was not invited to that. <laughs> I was at a worship leader conference and Glenn Packiam was was speaking and he was talking about how he, he kept a, he was writing down some songs. I just thought it was hilarious. He was writing down some songs and he met like a young worship leader who uh, who said, Oh yeah, I keep a song journal too. And he said, Oh well let me let me see what you're writing. And Glenn said, and the guy showed it to me and it's like That's great. That's nice. I'm glad you got that. <laughs> this guy who's like, he's, he's made, made a name for himself as a worship leader, and he's got so much on the ball, and it's just funny to me to think of somebody coming and saying, look at my song journal, and oh, man, that's great. No. And it, we all have that, like, that desire to, oh, man, I wish I had done just a little bit more, you know, that sort of thing. I think I got off the point, but I'm not really sure. So, Glenn Packy, I'm in this book called Lucky. He's, uh, he's observing three biblical layers of the poor. One, uh, the poor as powerless. So in the Old Testament, the poor uh, often refers to people who are materially poor, the, the destitute. Uh, the Old Testament is full of reminders to care for the poor, to be mindful of them, to never exploit them. And so in this case, the poor are powerless, the ones who depend upon another person for their survival. The second level of the poor, according to Glenn Packham, is the poor as God's people. We see this described in Scripture, like through the Psalms and, and through the Old Testament. The prayers and the Psalms of Israel put another twist on who the poor are. The poor becomes a way of describing kind of the plight of Israel herself. Uh, Israel's overrun by enemies, attacked by bandits, threatened by empires, and so what we see here is Israel, writing about itself in the Old Testament, becoming the marginalized and the oppressed. Israel herself is, is shown as being the poor at times. And when we get to the Beatitudes, what Jesus is showing us is this third level, which is the poor as the God-dependent. In the Psalms, we see that the poor are dependent upon God. We saw in that first level that poor can be described as someone who depends upon someone else just to be able to get by, right? And it's one level to depend on another person. It's a different level to be God-dependent, to depend upon God. Um, in the Psalms, uh, we see, uh, let's take a look at Psalm 113, verses 5 through 9. This is showing the, the psalmist and the children of Israel being, being very God-dependent, looking to God as the defender, seeing ahead of their need and going forth and meeting that need before, uh, before it, it destroys us, right? Uh, Psalm 113 says, Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. So those who are hearing Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount, 
when he's talking about the poor, he is talking about the powerless. He's also talking about the people who are God-dependent, those who don't really have a means of elevating themselves. And we've been talking about the poor, we've been talking about poverty and material things. I think what's that gets us here to this very important point, which is Jesus didn't just say, blessed are the poor, right? There's two more words there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's not the same thing as being materially unprosperous. Right? We can we can have money or not have money, and the condition of our spirit is a totally separate issue. The condition of our heart is a totally separate issue. To be poor in spirit is to be without spiritual arrogance. To be without spiritual pride, without spiritual self-importance. And when I'm saying, this, when I'm giving this description of what it means to be poor in spirit, and I'm thinking about the people Jesus is speaking to, I'm imagining them thinking, oh, our religious leaders of this time probably could use a little talking to Jesus. Right? It's it's really and, and it's not just a it's not just a Pharisaical thing, right? There's there's in the modern church, we get this way sometimes. We have a connection with God and we feel like we've got an answer. We feel like we've got everything going for us, we've got it all together, and I can't believe some people just don't get this. I can't believe they just don't get it. I can't why don't they see this the way I see it? Why don't they and not us, not any of us in here. But some believers find this sense of satisfaction or privilege or entitlement in having a truth that somebody else just doesn't get. Not us, but some people have this happen from time to time. But that's being, like, in a way, like finding your wealth in your spirit, right? That's not like being poor in spirit. Spirit means that you've emptied yourself of this need to be right spiritually. You've emptied yourself of this need to show people how spiritual you are, to show people how right with God you are. Because you understand that my relationship with God is not just about me. My relationship with God is about spirit is to be emptied of that spiritual arrogance, that spiritual pride that gets in the way of anybody else wanting this kind of relationship. You ever been around arrogant people for very long? Anybody been around arrogant people for very long and you want to go back there and hang around them again? Heck no. No way. I don't want to be around people who think that they've got this sounds terrible. I don't want to be around those people. That's that's wrong. Um, it's not fun to be around people who are excessively arrogant for very long, because everything becomes about them. There's all input goes in, nothing ever comes back. Right? They gather everything to themselves and they hold on to it, and then they show you how much stuff they have. Whether that's with money, that's with uh, influence, that's with their spirituality. People who are operating in a spirit of arrogance, there's no flow of the Holy Spirit from them in 
into my youth. So to be poor in spirit is to be without spiritual arrogance, without spiritual pride, spiritual self-importance. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, and uh, this won't be written up here because I forgot to give it to me from the project, but just trust me, or look in your Bible. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, God says to Isaiah, I live in a high and holy place, but I also live with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now, I was an English major. I don't do a lot of math, but I do remember in my math classes the transitive property of mathematics. And if, if there's a mathematician and I'm getting this wrong, don't tell everybody. Just tell me what you <laughs> So the transitive property of mathematics says that if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Right? Yeah. Don't tell me if I'm right or not. It's fine. You just, you're, sure. I don't know. Just grunt. Sounds good, right? So if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. And when I apply that to Isaiah 57, verse 15, he says, I live in a high and holy place, but I also live in the heart of the one who's contrite. And so to me, I'm looking at this transitive property and thinking, in some sense of the word, the heart of the contrite, the heart of the one who's emptied of spiritual pride, is the same as the high and holy place. That's where God dwells. That's where God lives. I live in the high and holy place, but I also live with the one who's contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit and to revive the heart. Jesus is showing something very different in this one little phrase. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's showing something very different than what they had come to expect from the religious leaders of their day. He's saying God's kingdom is available to and reserved for anyone whose heart has room for it. For anyone whose heart is emptied out of self and who said, please come in. It's available for anyone. And he's calling out to the people in, on, on the hill and saying, yes, you, you who's who's walking with a limp. Yes, it's, it's available for you. You who's got, got some sort of sickness going on. You, the, the person who's, who's demon-possessed right now. Yes, it's for you too. You who doesn't have anything materially. You who's a slave. Yes, it's for you too. It is for you because God is not looking just, just like he did with a king of his chosen people. He wasn't looking for the people who were the likeliest candidates. Yes, they can have access to the kingdom too. But the likely candidates are used to having access to everything. What's different about this is that he's saying, yes, even you who feel unlikely, this is for you, too. This is for you. So the materially poor on that hillside have already learned in some way to be poor in spirit.
as the Father did way back in person with Peter and Andrew. And so I think that, like, it's really interesting to me that, you know, that Jesus is not bringing in something new. The Sermon on the Mount is not a new idea. This is God's original idea. Just like God told Samuel in, when he was looking for a king, he said, okay, the standard of measurement is not what you think it is. Who can receive all that God has? The standard of measurement is not what you think it is. The standard of measurement is the heart. The standard of measurement is the heart. Anybody who is open to me, anybody who's calling out, anybody who, who is seeking after me, our access to his kingdom is unrelated to how much we have in this material world. same principle. By making the standard the heart, who gets to access to the kingdom of heaven? Who gets access to all that God has? It's about the heart. Which means that everybody starts at a new heart. Everybody's heart can change. Everybody's heart can open. We have different challenges that are in the way of us being vulnerable enough to open our hearts. But everybody's heart can be open regardless of what they have or don't have, regardless of their past, regardless of whether or not they feel like they have a future, everybody's heart can be open to God. And so when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's encouraging us to empty yourselves out every type of spiritual arrogance, spiritual pride, every, that everything in your heart that's taking up room that God wants to take, Everything that you're filling up with of yourself, empty out. And let the kingdom of heaven come in. He's done away with the concept of having privilege, having advantage, having an inside track. And he's just saying, just come. Just be. Just open up your heart and I'll come in. That's what he's saying. Everybody has. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. And I'm going to read one more version of this. This is my favorite version of the Bible. The easy-to-read version. I'm not making it up. That really is my favorite version of the Bible. And it says, Matthew 5, 3, Great blessings belong to those who know that they're spiritually God's kingdom belongs to them. And no matter where you, I'm going to just close with this, no matter where you've come from to get to this room this morning, God knew you would be here. This freaks me out every single time. Aiden, can you and Tim come up real quick? Um, it freaks me out every time I think about this. You're in this room this morning. God knew you would be here today. 
before anybody on earth was ever born. He knew you would be here this day. He knew that there's something here for you today. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. And I just feel like there's there's something important about whatever it was that brought you here today, whatever condition you're in this morning. He's telling us this morning that the kingdom of heaven is for those who recognize that there's spiritual need and who are just willing to open up and say, I'm just coming. So we're not going to do like an altar call this morning, but I would really love for everybody to stand up. We're just going to do something together real quick. And, um, and so I just want to ask this question. I just want to put this out here. And if there's something in it that is resonating in you, then like we do sometimes, I just want you to raise your hand. And then somebody near you is going to be able to pray for you, pray with you. And actually, we have prayer team members that are in the room. If you're a prayer team, can you raise your hand so folks can see where you are? Spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we've been talking about it this morning, 